0: Good evening. Tonight is Thursday night, April 8th, 2021. It is a great pleasure to be together with you for Mining the Riches of the Parsha. What a highlight of my week to be able to be together with such a wonderful group to be able to study together. Tonight there are three pieces that I'd like to share. A little bit different format than we've been doing and I invite your feedback on the format as well as on the substance of what we discuss. Between Pesach and Shavuos, many people have the custom to study Pirke Avos, Pirke Avot, Ethics of the Fathers or Chapters of the Fathers. Pirke Avos is a volume of the Mishnah and it contains practical lessons in how to be a better person. Pirkei Avos holds a special place in Jewish hearts. It is a beloved work, largely because its wisdom is both simple and profound, and it works. So allow me to share with you first this evening a couple of insights at the very beginning of Pirkei Avos. The first lesson, first chapter, the first practical lesson that we learn in Pirkei Avos is Hevi Mesunim Badin. If you are a judge, take your time arriving at a decision. Don't be hasty in judgment. One of the classic commentators, Ya'avaz, asked the following question. Pirkei Avos is ethics, lessons for everyone, for all of us. Why begin the work with something that only applies to judges? We're not judges. Why start with something that is limited to a very specific small group of people? And the IVAX answers, it's not limited. This advice is directed to every single one of us. I'll demonstrate by asking this question How many people have you judged in the past hour? Be honest. This is a lesson that applies to every one of us before we judge someone. Take time to think, to consider, to weigh all the possibilities. Before you conclude that someone is wrong and you criticize, or even if it's only an idea within your own mind, Take some time to calm yourself to arrive at a considered judgment. How do we do that? Well, the Sfas as one of the great Hasidic masters, offers the following advice from another comment of our sages. Our sages tell us, Have he done Kal ha'adam l'kavzchus? we should judge every person on the side of merit meaning of course if a person does something that is clearly prohibited it's clearly prohibited but if a person does something that could possibly be understood in a benign manner or even in a positive manner we should try to bring ourselves to evaluate that person in the most positive explanation that is possible. And the Sfasem is po- points out the following words. A rabbis could have simply said, Done as ha Adam Lakavskos, judge each person on the side of merit. What does it mean, heavy Heve means you should judge. Why that word heve you should at the beginning? The Svasama says that the word heve alludes to you yourself. In other words, judge the other person as if it was you who was doing what you see the other person doing. Because you know that if you were in that situation, if you were doing that action, would you criticize yourself? Probably not. Probably you would have a hundred excuses and reasons and explanations and rationalizations for why you're doing is okay, why what you are doing is okay. When you see someone else, find the same excuses for them that you would find for yourself. Here's a bit of a humorous insight from another source. So the phrase, have he done, es le l'kaf s'chus, judge, you should judge every person on the side of merit, Lakaf s'chus. The word kaf has a second meaning, not necessarily related to the first. Kaf means spoon, a spoon, a silverware, a spoon. The Sefer Pnei Menachem offers the following insight. Now maybe this does not accord with your experience, but there's something to learn from it. What do you use a spoon for? Okay, I know why most people use a spoon, but there's another use a spoon can serve. Maybe you have done this, maybe not. You can use a spoon as a shoehorn. If your shoe is tight and you have trouble getting it on, you can use a spoon, not the spoon you're using for dinner that night, okay, but you can use a spoon as a shoehorn. But just think about that for a moment, because how does a shoehorn work? If your shoe is tight and it won't go on easy, and you use a shoehorn or a spoon to help you get it on, it doesn't make your shoe any bigger, and it doesn't make your foot any fall smaller. It doesn't make your foot any smaller. So how does it work? it allows you to manage it allows you to get the job done if you look for merit in what someone else does if you look for it if you want to find it like a spoon like a shoehorn you'll manage you'll find it if you're looking for it and part of that is to realize that I am not really as perfect as I think I am, and the other person is probably not as blemished as I think they are. The Sfas MS adds one more related message, and this is also another lesson from our sages. <speaking in Hebrew> Our sages say, do not judge your fellow until you have stood in their place. Until you appreciate the pressures they are under, until you understand the context of their experience, until you have to use the famous phrase, walked a mile in their shoes, don't judge. That's what our sages say. But listen to the insight of the Sfas Emes. Klomar. This means to say. The application of this principle means You will never be able to completely stand in the place where someone else is standing. You will never be able to completely appreciate the situation someone else is in the financial situation their natural tendencies the pressures they face the experiences they have had in other words this line of our sages is saying don't ever do it because you will never reach that level of truly appreciating what the other person is going through so don't judge them ever ever That is the first lesson in Pirkei Avos. Hevimusunim badin. Be very reluctant or desist altogether from arriving at judgments even within your own heart about others. If we could do this, we could transform our lives. And this would really help us to become a better person it's the starting point to becoming a better person and it applies to every single one of us so I'd like to share a second piece On the holiday of Shavuos, coming up in just over five weeks, we read Sefer Rus, the Book of Ruth. There is a statement of our Rabbis concerning the Book of Ruth. Amr Rebbe Zeira, Rabbi Zeira said, this is from the Medrash, Megillazu. this book, this narrative, the story of Ruth. There are no laws in it. There are no ritual laws, there are no uh, uh, commercial law, there's no there, there, there are no rules or mitzvos or laws in it. Vlama so why is it written? Lagomle in order to teach us the enormous reward for those who perform acts of kindness for others famous statement by our rabbis the statement is not really accurate because in fact there are a number of laws that we do derive from the book of Ruth but more broadly There are several topics we need to study in order to appreciate the significance of the narrative. So what I propose is over the next several weeks, I will try to provide short pieces of this background so that hopefully when we reach Shavuos and read the Book of Ruth, it will have a deeper meaning and impact on all of us so what i want to share now very briefly is kind of an introduction to the subjects that i hope to discuss with you over the next number of weeks sadly today we have a very limited and partial view of god's Blueprint for life individually and as a society. We may be aware of individual Torah mitzvos about observing Shabbos, keeping kosher, prayer, life cycle events like bris, like sit, uh, sitting Shiva, God forbid, saying Kaddish. And there are other aspects of practical Jewish observance that we know about and study and hopefully observe. But because many of the mitzvahs of the Torah are not practically applicable today, we don't see the comprehensive scope of how God wants us to live. And the truth is when we study all of the mitzvahs, we see application in such a wide focus of life, literally every area of life is subject to being ennobled and enlightened by the mitzvahs of the Torah, both individually and collectively. For example, how does the Torah envision orchestrating a society that cares for every one of its members financially emotionally socially what is a torah social policy in former times when the entire corpus of the torah was applicable such a torah social policy would be obvious to jews But certainly over the last 2,000 years, very few of us know about it because much of it does not apply to us today. And it was in the days that the judges judged. This opening of the book of Ruth places our story at a fascinating period in our history very early in our history, about 3,000 years ago. And the events in the book of Ruth overlap the events in Sefer Shoftim, the book of Judges. And the book of Judges covers the era of Shoftim, of the Judges, in the days that the Judges judged. And that refers to an era in Jewish history from when the Jewish people first entered Israel after traveling through the desert. And that period lasted about 400 years. So for the first 400 years that the Jewish people were in the land of Israel, that period is known as the period of the Shoftim, the judges, because individual judges adjudicating controversies were the only structure in place for that entire 400-year history. There was no government, there was no king, there was no bureaucracy. Jewish society operated according to the full scope of the mitzvos of the Torah. So what did that look like? To what extent can a complete application of the commandments of the Torah run a society? The best picture that we have of what that looks like is the Book of Ruth. Because in this short work, we see torah social policy which i hope to share with you at least several components of it over the next several weeks we see torah social policy in action how it worked practically when all the pieces were in place and the book opens the book of ruth opens With failure, with a failure of leadership. And it was during the days that the judges judged. There was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem. Left Lagur Biste Moab in order to live to sojourn in the fields of Moab. So that's on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Remember, Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem. So this man left his home and went to live in Moab, the fields of Moab, presumably where there was no famine. Who ve'ishto u'shnei He and his wife and his two sons. They left their home. They left Beis Lechem. The place they left, Beis Lechem, Bethlehem, as I said, just south of Jerusalem. That is the place where years later, David Hamelach, King David, was born and raised, and many of the kings of the Jewish people came from Beis Lechem. The name of the place, Beis Lechem, is connected, not accidentally, with royalty and with leadership because the words Beis Lechem literally mean the place of bread, the source of bread, the source of sustenance. And the connection of the name to the kings that came from there and the leaders that came from there is to teach us the lesson that a leader's primary task is not honor, it's not power, it's not privilege, but it's caring for its people, providing for them, making sure they have what they need. The man who left Beis Lechem, because of the famine was named Elimelech. Elimelech was the shofate. He was the judge of that time. He was the leader, the only leader there was. And when his people needed him most, he failed them. He deserted them. And when we meet his wife Naomi, we meet a woman who had been an aristocrat at home, wealthy, respected, powerful. A woman who, when we meet her, has lost everything. Her husband, her sons, her wealth, her dignity. And she returns to Beis Lechem in shame. And she returns with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And the story that unfolds is about Naomi's redemption and the ascent of Ruth to become the great-grandmother of royalty. Ruth later becomes the great-grandmother of David Amela, King David, from whom all the kings of Israel will come. Ruth ultimately becomes the first woman who is referred to with the words a woman of valor. She's the first one to be called that. The book of Ruth is the story of transformation from the lowest point in life to the highest through the structure of the mitzvahs of the Torah. And that is what I hope to uncover with you over the next several weeks. Finally, one last piece relating to this week's Torah portion, the parsha of Shemini. I find it very difficult to discuss this narrative with you. It's difficult for me personally and I fear, I worry about the feelings of someone who will hear the details of this narrative. We are now concluding Yom HaShoah. Today has been the day that's coming to an end has been Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Memorial Day. So I offer this with humility and with reticence in commemoration of the Holocaust and in tribute to the survivors, every one of whom in many different ways is a hero of the Jewish people. Our Parsha this week, the Parsha of Shmini, contains the glorious narrative of the completion of the Mishkan, the sanctuary that was built by the Jewish people in the desert. And at the same moment, an unspeakable tragedy that befell two of the sons of Aharon, the first Kohen Gadol, the first High Priest, on the first day that he officiated as Kohen Gadol. The Torah says that the two older sons of Aharon, Nadav and Avihu, took an offering vayakrivu levnei of Nehashem zara ashe osam The Torah tells us they offered before God a foreign fire, a strange fire that God had not commanded them. We do not understand clearly what is meant by a foreign fire or a strange offering. And we certainly do not understand why that action provokes the reaction that we're going to see in the next verse. Atezei Eish Hashem, and a fire went forth from God, vatochal osam, and consumed them, vayamusu lifnei Hashem, and they died before God's presence. Bayomer Moshe Aharon, Moshe then said to his brother Aharon. Who had just witnessed and experienced the worst tragedy a parent can ever experience? Moshe said to him, This is what God meant when he said, I will be sanctified to, through those who are near to me by Yidom Aharon, and Aaron was silent. What are we meant to understand here? What are we meant to understand by Moshe's response that the death of these two holy souls reflect what it means for God to be sanctified through those who are near to him? What is Moshe saying? And what does it mean that Aharon was silent? Many of us have experienced grief, loss, trauma, immeasurable sadness. What wisdom is the Torah providing for us here that we can use in our times of crisis? So what I want to share with you is partially based on an essay by Bailey Newman. And as I've shared with you before, at a certain point in her life, she was a social worker at a Jewish school. And she tells the following story. She says one day she was in her office And a beloved young girl in grade three, a young girl that she knew and cared for, a student at this school, this young girl came into her office and started to cry. Her brother, this young girl's brother, had passed away a few months before And like many other days, this young girl was just not able to get through class. And so she came to the social worker and sat down and cried. And she said, this little girl, she said to the social worker, My soul feels shattered. I feel like I am filled with holes. And no one seems to be able to understand what I'm going through. That's what this little girl said to the social worker. Bailey reports that tears welled up in her own eyes and she thought about how to respond. And she said to this little girl, I wish there was something I could say that would take away the pain. And this little girl answered her. And it's just incredible to consider a grade grade three young girl has the following response. She said to the social worker, it's not your job to fill the holes in my heart. I am meant to fill them with my tears. We live in a world where many of us rush to try to fill the holes in the hearts of others with. God, perhaps with theology, perhaps with words of wisdom that we believe should help to mend the holes in someone else's heart. I confess that in years gone by, I have been guilty of this until I learn better. And the reason that we do this, to try to fill these holes in someone's heart, is partially because many of us are just not comfortable with cracks and brokenness and holes. And we want to have the capacity to fix, to fill those holes. But here's the truth. It's not our job to fill the holes in someone's heart. It's not our job to fill the space. Of course, I'm talking about all of us as lay people. I'm not referring to a professional in a professional setting that actually knows the right thing to do. I'm talking about all of us in our capacity as lay people. Moshe, in this week's parsha tried to fill his brother's heart holes. Moshe felt the tragic loss of his two nephews. And Moshe was so worried about his brother and the possible threat to his brother's faith in God. And so Moshe responded to Aaron's tragedy by reaffirming theological truths that he thought would be helpful. He told Aharon that his children dying young meant that they are special to God. But Aharon responded with silence. And in his silence, he teaches Moshe. And he teaches us that there are times when our job is not to fill the heart holes. There is a time to not say anything at all. In those moments, there is simply no place for rationalization, for explanation, for understanding. When someone, God forbid, suffers the loss, the passing of an immediate relative, there is a traditional word, line of comfort that we offer. The way we translate that is, may the Almighty comfort you among the other mourners of Zion and Jerusalem. But the word for Almighty, the word for God, Hamakom, is an unusual choice of one of God's names. Literally, it means Hamakom, the place. The place, referring to God, the place should comfort you. And what we are really saying is, I have nothing with which to fill the hole in your heart. Only God, the place within which your heart is held, the place that subsumes all holes, only that place can be of comfort to you now. Because the truth is, our explanations of tragedy will always be lacking. They will always miss the mark. That's why, as Aharon teaches us, we need to be silent in the face of them. A number of years ago, there was a tragic accident in Crown Heights in Brooklyn, a car accident that took the lives of five people. And Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, was quoted with the following words. He said, my father-in-law, the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe before him, my father-in-law once said to someone trying to make sense of the Holocaust. My father-in-law said, it's not our business to excuse God. And it goes without saying that words spoken against God in that circumstance in no way contradict faith. On the contrary, the complaint itself, the anger itself demonstrates the conviction That there is someone to complain to. That someone is responsible for what happens in our word. That there is a God who listens and cares. But it's not our job to excuse God. It was not Moshe's place to tell Aharon that his sons were killed to sanctify God's name. he was not required to fill that hole and neither are we. We cannot explain the Holocaust or a terrorist attack or a loved one's mental health crisis or a job loss. And in attempting to do so, we could very well hurt the person We are trying to comfort we don't know why these things happen it's not our business to excuse God but remember what that little girl said in the social worker's office she didn't just talk about the holes in her heart left by her brother's passing. She also expressed, because she understood, that her tears had purpose. When it comes to the holes in the hearts of others, we are just asked to bear witness, to support, to embrace, we may not try to fill them with God or anything else when their tragedy is before them. And when we have holes in our own heart, we must fill those holes with tears and turn them over to God. We need to say to God the time has come we are drowning in our tears it's time God to heal us that's the lesson Aharon teaches us in our Parsha may our tears be wiped away in love and devotion by the tender hand of God. My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful evening. I want to wish you a great Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.